You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to answer this prayer, that we would decrease, that you would increase, that you would hasten our ears, bridle our tongues, turn our eyes and our hearts to see you and understand you, that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, from your word this morning, that you would encourage our hearts that that are weary, that may feel pressed down that you would fill us with your joy, strengthen your church, so that in just a few minutes as you send us back out into the places we live and work, that we would be freshly aware that we are hidden in you, and that in you is our source of strength and our source of joy. Help us this morning as we go to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, my name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, not 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. And if you don't have a Bible, but you'd like to read along, uh, we have some folks who would love to put one in your hands. You can slip your hand up. And someone coming around will put a Bible in your hands. You can take those with you if you don't have one. First um, Thessalonians chapter 2. We're continuing our series in the letters of First and Second Thessalonians this morning. Um, our series is called, for the next number of weeks, Strength for Today and Bright Hope for Tomorrow, which I've said before is just a blatant ripoff of the line from the hymn, Grid is Thy Faithfulness, and we're okay with that. The Apostle Paul is writing these two letters to build up and encourage this young church, this young group of Christians who are living in a time and place that is increasingly hostile to the Word of God, increasingly hostile to the message of the gospel of Jesus. And so he's encouraging them in their faith, encouraging them to to hold fast and be strong and remind them of the great hope that they have and the glorious future in front of them, even though they can't see it. We're going to start this morning in verse 17 of chapter 2 and read all the way through chapter 3, which is verse 13. And if you were with us last week, you might remember we actually ended on verse 12. So we're jumping ahead to verse 17, and I want to uh, just unpack a little bit on why that is. Verses 13 through 16 are somewhat absent. Part of it is my error. Last week I could have and maybe should have had us read all the way through verse 16. And so it's partly my error in the planning and preparation of the series. Um, So I didn't intentionally leave out these verses. Uh, And I made a note of this in the weekly update this week. That's a shameless plug for the weekly update that goes out uh, every week in our email. Um, So if you want a little more on this, you can find it there. Um, But I I do want to unpack just briefly verses 13 through 16 so you don't think we just skip parts of the Bible, okay? Um, uh, so here, here's a little background on that. The big idea last week 
was, was that the work of proclaiming the gospel was, is worth it. It was worth it for Paul, and he's encouraging the church in Thessalonica, no matter the hardships you're going to face, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth the persecution. It's worth enduring suffering for the name of Jesus. And so Paul is acknowledging that these Thessalonians have endured and already suffered a lot for the gospel, much like the disciples had at the hands of their countrymen, and much like Jesus himself as he was killed by his own people. And it's intended, I think, as an encouragement, right, that they're on the right track in following Jesus if they're being subject to the same kind of persecution that Jesus himself received. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles of Jesus are beaten before they're being released for preaching about Jesus. And verse 41 of Acts chapter 5 tells us that they left the council after being chastised and punished physically. They left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' sake. And every day, it says, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. So when we get pushed back for talking about Jesus, which we talked about last week, rejoice. We're in good company. We're going to talk more about that today a little bit. And we can have confidence that God who is just will deal with all those who sin against God by rejecting Jesus and his gospel and those who persecute his people. So that's a brief synopsis of the end of the passage. We didn't intentionally but unintentionally kind of passed over a little bit last week. So today in our text, we're picking up in verse 17, and we read a lot of Paul's love and concern for the church. He's been encouraging them these last couple of chapters, and what we hear now is his great love for them and his deep concern for them because of the way he was treated by the authorities when he was with them. He was literally run out of town. And because of the way these believers in this young church were continuing to be treated, they were continuing to receive scorn and threats, Paul is concerned that the intensity of the persecution that is ramping up in their lives might be so great that it would cause these sisters and brothers to abandon their faith. It is a carryover from his encouragement that we just read last week. That there's a temptation possible to abandon the faith. That's what Paul's concerned about. He, he deeply loves them, which is why he's concerned. And we'll see his love for them here in this passage. But, but Paul isn't hopeless either. As he gets the report from young Timothy, he is confident that the Lord is the one who is able to strengthen his people. The Lord is the one who is able to make them holy and fill them with joy in the midst of trial. We, I think we hear all that here in this passage. So let's read our text for today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll read verse 17 all the way through chapter 3, verse 13, which is the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord for us today, <clears throat> starting in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored all the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy 
our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word for us this morning. There are a pair of words that show up here in a couple of places in this text, and I'd like to highlight them. The word joy and the word establish. The word joy isn't just a synonym for happiness here. It gives the impression of a, of a cause of joy, a, a reason for gladness. There's a sense of joy in or delight in something. There are times when we might feel happy or euphoric for no reason. And we do feel joy, and I don't want to get into a deep argument about semantics this morning, but the joy here, I think, biblically speaking, biblical joy is attached to something. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, says this, All joy reminds. It's never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or farther away or still about to be. There's this idea that joy is attached to something. Paul's joy is connected, attached to the work of God in and through these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. And Paul's joy is at risk of being stolen if the Thessalonians fall away due to the persecution they're facing. And so part of his reason for sending Timothy to get a report And his prayer for them is to establish them, that is to to strengthen them. That's the other word we see. So that they won't fall victim to their enemy who will orchestrate and manipulate all kinds of hardship to draw them away from these things that they believe. He wants to help them so they would not abandon their faith. So three things that I find here in this passage. One, that there's great joy to be found in the people of God. Two, that there's an enemy who seeks to destroy God's work and God's people. And three, that the Lord is the one who is able to strengthen and give lasting joy. Let's pick them apart a little bit here. First, joy found in the people of God. Look at chapter 2 right away at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you 
for a short time. In person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Look at verse 18. We wanted to come to you. Verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? The joy that Paul's talking about here, he's not talking about building his brand or accomplishing some large ministry goals. It's people. Paul's joy is these people. Look at verse 19. Paul's hope and joy and boasting, he says, when? When is this joy and hope and boasting kind of coming to fruition? He says, at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Paul is looking forward to that day. When Christ returns and all will recognize him and every eye will see and every knee will bow to Jesus in his radiance and brilliance that will count Jesus as supremely loving and supremely just and all-powerful and full of grace and truth and majesty and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul's looking at that day and saying, on that day I will take much joy in the fact that you all are worshiping this Jesus with me. Paul is looking at that day and asking, how can we worship this God? What will be valuable to Jesus on that day? What will give him the most glory and honor? What will please the king of glory? Will it not be the praise of the people that he's redeemed? Paul's aim is to bring maximum glory to God by fulfilling his calling and And on that day, because of the work of the Spirit through him, he might be able to, with humility and probably through tears, say, Lord, praise your name for the worshipers that you've called to yourself through these feeble hands. I am not worthy, but I am blessed to be counted worthy to join my voice to all of these who you've redeemed. Be glorified. I think that's what Paul's looking at here. Because Paul's clear in this letter and in many other letters that he is nothing of himself that is worth boasting in. Save this. Paul boasts in the faith of men and women who believe through his message. Because it's not him, it's the work of the Spirit to save. Because Paul knows and tells the church in Corinth that God uses human means and human messengers like simple clay pots to carry around this beautiful message of the gospel. And why does God use simple vessels like us? To prove that the glory does not belong to the pot that carries the message. The glory belongs to the message and the one who gives it. It belongs to God. The power belongs to God and not to us. The existence of the church in Thessalonica is worthy of Paul's joy because it proves that the power of the gospel is legit. That, the, that God is the power to save. And so he rejoices in what God is doing in and through them. Paul's joy is anchored to all that God has done already. He's redeemed men and women from darkness to light. And his joy is anchored to what God will do when Christ comes again. And all will fall down and worship him. And will fully enter into the joy of the Father. There is joy to be found in the people of God. And I think sometimes we miss this. Those redeemed by the blood of Jesus, they are precious to God. 
But do we consider sometimes that people here in our own church family, in our community group, people sitting next to you right now, do we often think of them as precious to God and precious to us? See, when Paul says that these people are his joy, maybe we're a little bit convicted or maybe we should be. I mean, how long were we all isolated from one another during the beginning of this whole pandemic, right? There was this longing, unless you're like a super introvert and even still you miss people, right? There's this longing to be with others. And this forced separation exposed, I think, one of two things in us. One, it may have exposed just how much of the body of Christ, how much it really meant to us. We longed for it, for each other, not unlike Paul's desire to be face-to-face, right? He had been torn away from people he loved, and we're reminded of the significance and joy to be found in the body of Christ. I remember keenly, I think one of the first Sundays we gathered back here for corporate worship, that feeling of like, I'm, I missed you, Right? And that it was exposed in some of us, and, and that's good. The, the challenge is, this is the other thing that I think was exposed in us in light of the last 18 or so months. It may have exposed in us just how little the body of Christ actually means to us. I mean, we felt isolated, but there was no legitimate longing to be with one another. Rather than a blessing for our good, The body is more of a burden we have to endure. Like, can I just get through this? Paul's telling us and showing us by example that there is joy to be found in the body of Christ. And the Thessalonians have have apparently found this to be true themselves. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. The Thessalonians have the same joy for Paul that he has for them. This is a gospel-born love. There's no reason that they would know each other or care about each other at all, save for the fact that they share together in Christ Jesus. And out of that has birthed this love for one another, the the joy and, and affection and care that Paul has for them and expresses to them is now turned back. And they're like, Paul, we love you too, man. We miss you. And then Paul says in Verse 9 of chapter 3, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake? What thanksgiving can we give back to God for you? I don't know if you hear that in this language, but that's worship language. Thanksgiving offered to God. That's praise. That's gratitude. That's worship. For the body of Christ and the people that God has redeemed. This is an anchor for Paul and for the Thessalonians and for us. There's an anchor for us that there's affection and and love and joy to be found attached to the people of God. If we have no longing to be with God's people, then we should ask ourselves, well, then what is robbing us of the kind of joy that is ours, is supposed to be ours as part of the body of Christ? And that's part of Paul's concern. He loves them so much. 
And he's concerned about them that all the hardships they're facing are going to scatter them and disconnect them from the things that bind them together. The persecution is coming at them hard. And with all of that, they might be tempted to turn away from the faith that they have professed. Which points to the problem that Paul is kind of identifying. That there is an enemy who seeks to destroy God's work and God's people. It comes up twice in this passage. Paul references it at the beginning, chapter 2, verse 18. Paul says, I wanted to come to you sooner. I tried multiple times to come to you, but Paul says, Satan hindered us. Paul here is ascribing some of his inability to visit them as a work of Satan. And even though persecution is coming through human actions, Paul is rightly pointing out the source of that wickedness and evil. Paul also says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so this is not just putting everything in the junk drawer of the devil made me do it, but it's a recognition of that there is an enemy of God who seeks to take take God's glory for himself. And he hates almost nothing more than those to whom God might show his glory in the person of Jesus. Romans chapter 8 tells us, Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. We are welcomed in Christ into God's family, loved as firstborn and heirs to all of the promises. The Spirit himself, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And the enemy, Satan, hates us for this adoption. This sharing of the promises of Christ, co-heirs with Christ as beloved children, he hates it. John 10 tells us, Jesus says, that there's a thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I wanted to make sure you were doing okay. I sent Timothy to you because I couldn't, couldn't bear it not hearing any longer. I needed to know, so I sent Timothy to you because I wanted to make sure you were doing okay. Because I was concerned that perhaps the tempter had tempted you, that the thief may come to steal from you. That is the work of the gospel that was planted and that you might abandon the faith. And therefore, our work among you, our labor, would be in vain. This is a legitimate concern for Paul and for us. This whole letter is written in response to this report that young Timothy brings back to Paul because he's just longing to hear how they're doing. And the reason Paul sent Timothy to them was to encourage them and to caution them. He was concerned that all that they were facing was going to be too much And they might be in danger of turning away from the gospel. And notice the two ways that Satan works here in this passage. In chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says that Satan hindered us. This seems direct. Like Paul was attempting to get back into the country, and there were forces that kept him from getting in. Active hindering. Persecution in other towns. People who worked against Paul and dragged him before various authorities. Paul's saying sometimes there's a direct assault on the work of the gospel that we can attribute to our enemy. 
But the second way that Paul identifies is more subtle. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. He uses the word tempter. His fears that the tempter had tempted them away, that perhaps Satan had lured them away from their faith by offering something better. It's less direct. It's more subtle. Perhaps in the midst of hardship, it was the offer of a little temporary security or a little temporary comfort. All all it'll cost you is just a small bit of integrity. Maybe those attacking them would be lenient if they would just disavow a few of the claims they've been making about Jesus. So they might be tempted to retract some of their beliefs for the sake of less public ridicule. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says this, which I found uh, helpful and sobering. If only this sentiment were deeply impressed upon the minds of all pious people, that Satan is continually contriving by every means, in whatever way he can hinder or obstruct the edification of the church, we would then assuredly be more careful to resist him. We would take more care to maintain sound teaching of which that enemy strives so keenly to deprive us. If only this sentiment that Satan is continually working by every means to hinder the edification of the church. Maybe if we understood that, Calvin says, we'd take that a little more seriously. That's what Paul's getting at here. Like, don't be fooled. There's a thief and he wants to rob you of what God's given you. So Paul sends Timothy to establish and exhort the Thessalonians in their faith so that they wouldn't be moved Don't be discouraged, Paul says. Don't don't let those who hate the gospel threaten your faith and rob you of the joy that is yours. For you yourselves know, verse 3, that that we are destined for this. We're going to come back to that. And we told you this when we were with you, verse 4, and it has come to pass. We've experienced this, and you've experienced this, Paul says. As we read in Romans chapter 8 earlier, being heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided... We suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Paul says, we are destined for this. This is persecution. (laughs) It's suffering. That, that, That all who are called in Christ Jesus are destined to suffer for his name. That's what I think Paul is saying. Does that make you uncomfortable? See, Paul is saying, this shouldn't surprise you, Thessalonians. This shouldn't surprise you, Romans, church in Corinth. There's a theme that shows up in Paul's writings to all these churches, and this is one of them. This should not surprise you. You are, we are destined for this. And then in Romans 8, Paul gives this, like, knockout. Because then he says, "I, I consider that all the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There is joy to be found through the tragedy. Anchored to what God has already done. Anchored to the promise of the life to come. We don't shy away from tragedy. We don't run from it, but we endure it. And as the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, our greatest joys swim on the crests of the huge billows of trouble. 
Our greatest joys swim on the crests of the huge billows of trouble. This is why Paul works hard and prays hard for these people that he loves. Which brings us to the last part of our text. Paul believes that the Lord is the one who is able to strengthen his people. Look at all the laboring language here. He says, we endeavored, we we wanted to come to you again and again. We were willing to be left behind, so we sent Timothy. And then when Timothy was sent, he was sent to do a couple things. To establish, to exhort you in your faith. He says, we kept telling you. And then in verse 10, he says, we pray most earnestly night and day. Paul says, we Timothy was sent to establish you. And this word here, establish, means to strengthen. It it really means to make more strong, to make more firm, to take what strength you have and multiply it, to establish you. Why? So that no one be moved by these afflictions. I want to strengthen you so that you will not be moved moved. If I could take Paul's words here and rework them a little bit for you and for us, for me. Don't let the enemy who hates you rob you of the joy that is yours in Christ Jesus, that you have been found in a fellowship of believers That in Christ Jesus, you have been brought from death to life. That in Jesus, you are a new creation. And that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that he is coming again in glory to make all things right. And to finally bring to completion all his work. And to take us with him in glory forever. Don't let the enemy rob you of all that based on some temporary trial or tragedy. In Christ Jesus, yes, suffering with and for Christ is your destiny. And this destiny comes with it an eternal and glorious and more beautiful joy. This is how Paul closes this section of text. He then prays. Verses 11 through 13, this is the fruit, the result Paul is praying comes from this time of persecution. Because he knows they're going to keep facing it. He knows it's going to continue. And this is, so this is what Paul prays. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul's desire is still to see them. I love that. You don't, it's not lost on him, like, I, I still love you and I still want to see you. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I pray that it was. I pray that I can see you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. This increase and abound, these two similar words here, is intentional. It's meant to emphasize the meaning, to increase a lot, is what he's saying. May the Lord make you increase a lot in love for one another and for all. Did you catch that? What should be on display in you who are striving after Jesus, who are maturing in your faith and full of joy is love. (laughs) Love for one another and love for all. That is love for the body that he's built around you for one another and for everyone else, for all people. And maybe this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. This includes love for your enemies. 
Love for those who are actively persecuting you, is what Paul's telling them. Man, that's a prayer. (laughs) I want to love people far better than I do. Don't you? I want this prayer to come from my mouth, from my own heart, more often. Oh Lord, make me increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. So that. That's the, that's the reason. The purpose of this kind of prayer is hearts that are blameless in holiness before God. I pray that, that love for one another and for others will increase among you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God. God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. Love then is a significant component of what it means to be made holy. And we'll talk more about holiness as these, our study in these two letters uh, continues, but it comes up here, so we'll talk about it. Being holy isn't just an abstract idea of like rule keeping or just checking the boxes, doing the right things. Holiness is being like Jesus. And this is not something that we just manufacture out of our own strength. Paul's prayer for them is that they would increase in love and in so doing show that he is establishing our hearts blameless in holiness before God. May the Lord establish this transformation. May he make us increase in love. May the Lord strengthen our love for one another and our love for all people both our love and connection and unity with one another in the body, love for our friends, and love for our enemies. And we're not going to cover it all today, but, but Paul is setting up what comes next in chapter 4, where he begins to take this beautiful vision of, of God's glory and the joy to come and how it's all worth it, and then within that context says, now I want to encourage you how to live in light of that. And he challenges the church to live pleasing lives before God, to have brotherly love towards one another, how to ready themselves for the return of Jesus. We'll get into that as we continue through this letter. But Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, and I'm saying to us, that the Lord is doing something among us. That whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever areas you might be tempted under the attack of an enemy who does actually seek your destruction desiring to lure you away from the things that you once believed, Paul is confident, and I am confident, that the Lord is able to establish and strengthen you. Whether you know it or not, you've been blessed with the church, as imperfect as she is, the church being purified by Jesus himself, and so we have this body that he's put us in so that our joy might increase, so that we might be strengthened when we are weak. We're reminded that the suffering we experience is not foreign to us. It's not a surprise to God. But is is the path that we as God's people are destined to walk. And at the end of that path is the promise of a crown of glory. So when the enemy of our souls is active, tempting to, to turn us aside from the faith we've been given, let me just echo Paul's words to not lose heart. Because we can be sure that the Lord himself is able to strengthen and sustain us, to establish us, to make us more sure 
so that our hearts are strengthened. He makes us holy and fills us with joy. Now let me pray Paul's prayer for us as we close. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all so that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Father, we ask that you would actually answer this prayer. That you would work in us to increase and abound, our hearts to increase and abound in love for one another. That you would strengthen us where we are weak. That we would be established and that we would endure. Father, would you continue your work among us to knit together your people? That we might take joy in your work among us and give you all the glory. We do ask you would fill us with joy in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.